I've been wanting to talk about this subject for years, actually, and never could figure out how I could fit it into a, a one-hour slot at the fair. But I came across an article recently, an essay, really, and it, it really kind of covered the whole topic in, 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 a, in just a, a real brief four- or five-page article, and it inspired me that, that if, if he could do it, maybe I could try to fit it in. So um, we, we can hope that I, that I at least get some of it in here. But um, I'm going to actually start this by kind of quoting a couple of things in this article because I thought it was quite insightful, um, the way that it positioned this whole issue. But the article was called, What Progress Wants?, and it began with a brief summary of just the dismal condition of Western culture. I mean, it talked about the deepening political divisions. It talked about the depression, the suicide, uh, lack of trust in people and institutions, um, the supply chain issues, collapse of you know, the food, food shortages and so forth. We've all seen the statistics. We've all, we all kind of know the situation that we find ourselves in generally. But he made a point there that people have tended to try and address those issues individually. So they look at them and think, well, this, this is an individual problem. But what actually they've, he began to realize is that these are really all symptoms of a much larger cultural issue. And that it wouldn't be sufficient to try to deal with one particular aspect or another, but the problem was a lot bigger than that. It was endemic to the culture. And uh, he says in the article, he asked the question of, of what is the identity of this thing that's lurking under the surface? And uh, he says, whatever it is, it seems confused. And I think really it, that was tongue-in-cheek. What, really, what he was really suggesting is that it's attempting to confuse all of us. Uh, it attempts to convince us that right is wrong, that wrong is right, that order is disorder, and disorder is order, that truth is lies, and, and, and vice versa. Um, and he frames this whole article with a quote, and I want to use this to frame our discussion here today, so I'll just read it to you verbatim. He says, imagine for a moment that some force is active in the world which is beyond us. In recent years, this force seems to have become manifest in some way we can't quite put our finger on and has stimulated the craziness of the times. Perhaps it has always been there watching and is now seizing its moment, or perhaps it is simply beginning to spin out of control. Either way, this force seems to be in some inexplicable way independent of us, and yet acting within us, too. Let's give this force a name. Let's just call it progress. And then he, he poses the question, but what does progress want? And I thought that was an interesting way to view progress, is somehow it has embodied itself in a culture, and it wants something from us. It's trying to accomplish something. And, well, how does it plan to accomplish all of what it seeks to accomplish? It seeks to uh, create perpetual revolution. It seeks to destroy history. It seeks the death of God. It seeks the uprooting and liberation from everything and to remake all of us into its own image. How does it seek to accomplish this? Well, for the most part, I think it already has in a cultural sense. Um, at what point in this country's history, that it seemed like the old moral ethics, the Judeo-Christian fabric that had marked American culture for so many years began to unravel and something else take shape in this country. What, what, would you, what event would you say signifies and personifies that shift? Yes, yes to all. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, it was this. It was the, the counterculture of the 1960s. Just about everybody says that. I've never had anybody say anything else. Um, Oz Guinness said that no one can understand the present crisis in the United States and the West without first understanding the 1960s. And in uh, Time magazine, it said that 1968 
was like a knife blade that severed the past from the future. But what's interesting about it is more and more historians and sociologists are beginning to say that what took place in the 60s actually began at least a decade earlier in this country. They said there was something brewing under the surface of this country that actually exploded and came to birth in the 1960s. And what they, what they said that was, was the hedonism of the 1950s. So we had a unique situation in this country. It was, it was post-war. We had effectively decimated all of the competition in Europe and the rest of the world through the war and had a unique opportunity to build up the American economy through production. But the problem is that even at that time, people had moral qualms about hedonism. It wasn't generally considered the ethical thing to do to just go out and spend untold amounts of money on yourself. And so there was a concerted effort, and I wish I could give a whole talk on this, by a number of uh, sociologists and uh, advertising agencies and so forth to actually, through advertising, to come against and break down those moral qualms against hedonism and actually trans, uh, transform hedonism into a moral good. I mean, the economy is dependent upon it. If we don't spend money, the economy won't thrive. And so something that had previously been viewed by Christians even as sin suddenly became the right thing to do. It became the ethical thing to do for the good of the economy. Uh, I'll just define hedonism so we're all on the same page and for the purposes of the rest of this discussion. Hedonism is the doctrine that pleasure or happiness is the sole or chief good in life. This process of hedonism, what they say happened is that, that the ethical wall of moral restraint was broken down through this. And that's what paved the way for the release of the 60s. Uh, e even, even in some cases, you know, the, the children of the parents of the 50s became the, the, the generation of the 60s, and they could see something inconsistent in the faith of their parents. You know, they still went to church on Sundays. They still adhered to this you know, veneer of morality and Christianity, but they could see there was something pulling them that seemed a little bit different than what they were reading about in the Bible. And so even that inconsistency began to disrupt the culture, and they suddenly they just, they just dismissed, in large part, their parents' religion. And that gave birth to the, to the counterculture of the, of the 1960s. This process, for those of us who are believers, might seem a little familiar if we think about the deception of Adam and Eve in the garden. We talked about this a little bit in the last talk. Um, do you think that it would have been effective if Satan had attempted to undermine God to Adam and Eve without first seducing them and enticing them? I mean, it seemed like they had a pretty good relationship with God. It seemed like they were pretty much content. I mean, they had this entire garden to themselves. And, and so what the serpent needed to do if he was going to detach them from that order of life was to first appeal to their base desires, to seduce them and entice them. James says that we are tempted and deceived when we're led astray by our own desires. And so this effort at deception began with seduction. Has God indeed said? Has he really said you can't have this? I mean, really? Well, not exactly. You know, he, he said I could eat all of this, but there's just this one. There's just this one that I can't have. And you can almost hear modern culture in, in his response. Are you sure? I mean, if, if God, if he really loves you, would he want to withhold this from you? I mean, something you really want? And so this desire for wisdom and this pursuit of a certain kind of hedonism, really, this kind of hedonistic pursuit was necessary in order for God to then be undermined. He's against you. He doesn't want you to have all this. And then through that undermining, they could become detached from that order of life and effectively destroyed. The entire social order collapsed and the world was given over to death. 
And I believe that throughout history, we can see this same process taking place in cultures. And I'm going to give a couple of examples of that. Uh, the American dream is rooted in the ideas of freedom and progress. I think it's something we can all identify with. Uh, I think this was originally reflective of the heart of the Puritan settlers that first came to this country. They came seeking religious freedom. They came seeking a place where they would be free to serve God and one another and to worship according to their conscience and to advance God's kingdom on the earth. And I think that reflects in large part, I mean, Christians for millennia have looked forward to the second coming of Christ, the end of sin and death and the ushering in of the new heavens and the new earth. And so this linear view of history is something that was unique to the Hebrews and to the Christians. The pagan view of history was cyclical. It was not linear. But at some point in time, this view of history, this idea of progress, was hijacked and co-opted by the enemy. And I think that one of the keys to that hijacking and co-opting was a redefinition of the word freedom. Both systems, and you know, we can, we, can, we can look at the two trees in the garden. Ezekiel says that those two trees, the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life, both continued to branch out throughout human history. And they took forms in, in political systems and even political rulers throughout history. And so if we, if we just look at that and we say, okay, one of them we'll call Babylon, one of them we'll call Jerusalem. As they're progressing throughout history, both of them are offering freedom. Both of them are offering eternal life. We'll never die. Both of them are offering that at some point we can become like God. But one of them is lying. One of them is actually heading in the opposite direction. And I think this redefinition of the word freedom is the key. How did Paul define freedom in his letter to the Galatians? He said, we've been called to liberty, but not the kind of liberty that indulges the flesh, but in liberty to serve one another, is what he said. And so I think in that picture, we see two, the, the two kinds of freedom. You know, the freedom to serve God and to one another, to be free to, to worship God and, and to, to build his kingdom according to his purpose, and the freedom to seek after our own desires. Peter said the same thing. He said, live as free people, but do not use freedom as a covering for evil or a cloak for vice in some translations but as bondservants of God. The freedom that marked the original American dream in this country was hijacked by a kind of freedom that sought freedom from God and from all of the restraints that would hold us back from seeking after our own desires. Something very serpentine, isn't it? Uh, I think one of the things that's most deceptive and so pernicious about this, what I'll refer to as American Dream 2.0, is that it actually appeals to progressives and liberals and conservatives alike. Uh, they may dispute the speed and the rate of progress. They may dispute the terms of progress. But on one side, we see you know, capitalism, industrialism, big business progressing. On the other, maybe it's social and economic and environmental reform progressing. But there's no disputing that the good society is a place where men and women will have enough money and personal freedom to seek after whatever it is that they desire. That's not disputed. And that American dream bears no resemblance to the original American dream that was perpetuated in this country in its early, earliest years. Uh, as a perversion of religion, this form of progress appeals to hungry hearts. I think it's what caused Marxists to, 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 to follow after communism in Russia. I think it's what caused you know, Germans to, to, to follow after Nazism. 
Um, I call it a perversion of religion because has God not placed eternity in the hearts of men? Has he not placed something inside of us that reaches for transcendence? Something inside of us that, that longs to be a part of building something? And yet it's a perversion of religion because it offers and promises a kind of transcendence apart from God. And we know that there is no transcendence apart from God. That's a lie. Now, this, this strange form of freedom and progress does not trace its roots, as I said, to early America or to Christianity. Uh, we can actually follow it through all of history, but I'm going to start in the 15th century, just briefly give a couple of examples of this. Um, we saw it in Florence in the Renaissance of the, of the 15th century, where we saw the rebirth of the ancient Roman and, and Greek pagan ideal of, of, of humanism. Um, the predominant family, as those of you who are familiar with the Renaissance will know, was the Medici family in Florence. They were really the ones that effectively began and funded the Italian Renaissance. They were a banking family, and they had a little bit of a problem. Because in Europe at that time, usury and hedonism were sins. Can you see the problem that would pose to a banking family? And so they deliberately set out to undermine those Judeo-Christian moral ethics through first the translation of, of, of Greek texts of uh, Aristotle and Plato, and then through the translation of, of Hermetic text, ancient pagan texts of alchemy that would effectively bring to birth modern science. And in doing so, they, they undermined those old values. They began to thrive as a banking empire, and those funds ended up funding the dismantling of Christian culture in Europe and paved the way for the scientific revolution of the 1600s, where philosophers, not scientists, philosophers such as Rene Descartes, and Francis Bacon began to devise this scientific method which effectively divorced the mind of man from creation and made it an object of manipulation, separating us and, and making us, promising us that we could be masters over the universe and in the process making the mind of man the arbiter of truth. I think, therefore I am, is what Descartes was famous for saying. And so, you know, Bacon envisioned this utopia that he called the New Atlantis that would be ruled over by a scientific priesthood. Uh, and he called this New Atlantis an Isle of Progress. Uh, we saw it in the Enlightenment, the movement that was born out of the scientific revolution, the philosophy which was described by its, its foremost historian and supporter and advocate, Peter Gay, uh, he was not being critical. He was actually supporting it when he said this. He said that the philosophy of the Enlightenment is described first and foremost as man is and must be the measure of all things. This was the philosophy of the movement that, that eventually brought death to God and Christianity in Europe. Uh, the French Revolution, if it was about anything, was about the releasing of man's basest desires throwing off the restraints that would hold them back and allowing them to seek after whatever it is that they, that they wanted. Um, I read once that the 1960s, what happened in the 60s, was that the ideals of the French Revolution replaced those of the American Revolution. The, the 1776 definition of freedom was exchanged for the 1789 version of freedom. I'm going to give you a, a quote here that's going to show you what I'm talking about here. This was a quote by a former Calvinist pastor by the name of Jean-Paul Rabat that was one of the chief apostles of the French Revolution and the Reign of Terror that came forth from the French Enlightenment. Uh, if you're not familiar with that, I don't have a lot of time to get into it, but this picture should suffice to convey the essence of the French Revolution. It's a, that's a, a, a guillotine, which was invented during that time. And uh, as the French revolutionaries overthrew the entire order of France 
blood ran in the streets of, of, of France as uh, countless French people were murdered um, by this this new government. But um, this was the the philosophy of that government. This is what they were attempting to do through this movement. Uh, this is this is a quote. And I'm going to read it in its entirety so you get the picture. This is not me speaking, but but him. Um, what Rabat proposed was that for the revolution, the French Revolution, to be successful, an entire system of cultural indoctrination would need to be created. This system would aim to strip the shackles of the old order and transform the French people into a new people. This reshaping of the French people in a single generation would require not only a new revolution in heads and hearts, parallel to the one already accomplished in government and society. This second revolution would need to use every available means to bewitch the people by making this indoctrination likable, seductive, and entrancing. In the end, mass indoctrination of the level required could only be achieved through the use of education, the theater, the press, and the festivals, which would impart to the people an entirely new set of attitudes, opinions, and habits to replace the old. It would only then be, and, and please listen if you didn't hear anything else, please listen to this one. This is not me speaking, this is him. It was only then that the nation could act as a single body, a body that would serve as a new secular kingdom imagined on the model of the corpus mysticum of the church headed by Jesus. The direct aims of the revolution in France, which, which brought modern culture to life in, 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 in Europe, uh, it was really the, the, the birth of, modern, of modernity as we know it, um, hugely influential in our culture. The aims were that through some form of seduction and bewitching, through cultural means of indoctrination, we would change the mindsets, opinions, attitudes, and habits of the people, and in the process, build a counterfeit body of Christ. That's pretty... Uh, Spine-tangling, isn't it? We don't often read about that in history. Um, as was the case in Europe, this philosophy and mindset soon jumped the pond and found its way into America, into American culture. The architect of the French Revolution was a man named Jean-Jacques Rousseau. I wish I had time to get into the, the, many li the, 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 the long uh, list of uh, uh, abominations. <laughs> that were carried out by, by Rousseau. Um, but in addition to being the architect of the French Revolution, he was also the uh, one who devised and, and created the philosophy for the modern system of education that is now predominant in this country. Uh, most of you or some of you may be familiar that the American model of education was actually built off of the Prussian the German model of education. That's evident in the word kindergarten. Um, the early American educators were influenced by the German model. They even went to Germany to study it and everything else. Well, Frederick the Great, who initiated this Prussian education model in, 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 in Prussia and in Germany, uh, was obsessed with the Enlightenment. He was absolutely obsessed with Rousseau and Voltaire and this, this new way of thinking. And, and even the American system when it, the education system, when it was first created by Horace Mann and you know, came to, to being in Massachusetts, uh, those that, 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 that criticized that education system said it really seemed like something that was more uh, geared towards the indoctrination of people than it was the educating of people. Nietzsche argued, however, that the French Enlightenment had not gone far enough in its killing of God. He said it wasn't, it wasn't enough just to convince people that God did not exist, so long as the entire culture was built on this Judeo-Christian moral fabric. If the culture remains Christian, then really God is not dead, is what he was saying. 
And so there's got to be a concerted effort, a deliberate effort, not just to kill God, but to remove any vestige of him in modern and in, in, in Western Judeo-Christian culture. And uh, it was Karl Marx was one, another German philosopher who hoped to do this. Um, he ultimately failed to do so, especially in the West. Uh, he had tried to convince people they could become his God. In fact, I think the best summation of Marxism in a short amount of time comes from a former Marxist by the name of Whitaker Chambers, who was a journalist for Time, went on to become a journalist for Time magazine. He described communism as man's second oldest faith, whose promise was whispered in the first days of creation under the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, ye shall be as gods. He summed up the communist vision as the vision of man without God. Marx's disciple, Joseph Stalin, justified his war on religion as, quote, a way of getting rid of a past that was holding people back and marching towards the future of science and progress. Stalin was a big fan of progress, and he couched it in this idea that the people are being held back. We, we need to release them to, this, to all the possibilities of modern culture and progress and science and technology. But the systematic murder of 10 million of his own people failed to convince uh, either Russia or the rest of the world that his motives were pure. Seemed like there was something else up his sleeve. Uh, but it wouldn't be until an Italian communist visionary by the name of Gramsci, see, he, he was languishing in a uh, Mussolini's prison, and he got an epiphany about why Marxism had largely failed, or, what, or was failing and would fail. He said that in the West in particular, people aren't convinced that they're oppressed. Capitalism makes people feel kind of free. They don't, they don't realize that they're, that they're in bondage. And so we've got to find some way to convince them that what they think is freedom and, and, and liberty and all of this and that they're quite content with is actually terrible and it's bondage and it's oppression. And so we need to find a way to tear down their perceptions of that and to seduce them culturally into having a new mindset about this whole system. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Um, he referred to this cultural revolution. He didn't, but uh, a man who came afterwards characterized uh, Gramsci's philosophy as a long march through the institutions. So it wouldn't be a political or economic revolution. It would be a cultural revolution whereby the people would become seduced, bewitched, indoctrinated through cultural means. His vision was that we would take leading Marxists and embed them within the institutions and informing agencies of the West universities, the media, the press, and so forth. Now, I just want to make a quick qualifier here. I hope it has been clear from the beginning that I am not pointing at any one of these movements, Marxism, the Enlightenment, any particular movement is embodying in and of itself and in full this larger cultural problem. I feel like the problem began in the garden and has found expression all throughout history. And Marxism was one and a, a very great expression of that, of that cultural uh, movement, but it was not the only. And so it's, it wouldn't do to just focus on Marxism or just focus on this or focus on that. It's a larger uh, and much deeper problem than that that is just finding expression in these historical movements. But what Gramsci said is that what they're going to need to do in order for the revolution to be successful in America and in the West in particular is to gain mastery over human consciousness. This is not something that he thought people were, willing, were going to willingly subscribe to. They'd have to be brainwashed, effectively. And in order for the culture revolution to be successful, they must accomplish two things. Criticize and educate. Criticize the old order and undermine its values and educate, which literally means lead out of one system 
and reindoctrinate them into another system. This is what we need to do to accomplish this revolution in the West. Who, who would be up to such a task? Well, there was a group of uh, Marxist intellectuals that actually fled Hitler during World War II and came to America and situated themselves within American universities. They were referred to officially as the Institute for Social Research, but they were more commonly referred to as the Frankfurt School because that was the university they came out of in Germany. Um, they were described, I'm going to use somebody else's words because I couldn't possibly do it justice, and I want to blame somebody else if it's inflammatory. So, <laughs> um, One historian described them as a veritable devil's den of derangement. Uh, I'm going to spare you the details, and, and, and I probably shouldn't even recommend that you look into it, but it would, you would be hard-pressed to find a bigger bunch of perverts than these guys. I mean, if you, if, you, if you look into the history of this, I mean, there was something not quite right there. And uh, they recognized that if they were going to undermine the old order, they were going to have to use that serpent's sleight of hand. There was something missing. And you know, in, in Marx's approach, he was just trying to undermine God. But we'd have to first seduce people, appeal to their own desires, and then we could effectively undermine God, detach them from the culture, and destroy it. And so they took Marx and combined him with Freud. This Freudian idea that, that men and women were sexually repressed and, and, and appealed to these base desires in, in men and women to detach them from that old order and begin to, to refigure their minds and their hearts towards this new one. I'm going to describe this process in, in, in this historian's words because they are classic. The noxious marks had conjured up the most toxic ideas of the 19th century, whereas the neurotic Freud had cooked up the most infantile ideas of the 20th century. Swirling the insipid ideas of these two ideological psychological basket cases into a single malevolent witch's brew was bound to uncork a barrel of mischief. The Frankfurt School was the laboratory and the distillery for their concoction, and the children of the 1960s would be their twitching guinea pigs and guzzling alcoholics. The flower children, the hippies, the Woodstock generation, the hate Asbury LSD dancers would all drink deep from the magic chalice, intoxicated by lofty dreams of fundamental transformation of the culture, country, and world. A generation or two later, they would become the nutty professors who mixed the Kool-Aid for the millennials who would go on to merrily redefine everything. That was their contribution to our culture. Do you know what they refer to their philosophy as? Anybody, anybody know? They called it critical theory. They devised critical theory. Um, critical did not mean, as some of us might understand it, an analytical theory, uh, uh, the study of something. It, mean, it meant the criticizing and tearing down. Their philosophy, without even really a, a comprehensive vision for what the future would hold, was to simply criticize and tear down every vestige of the existing order until there was nothing left to stand. That was what critical theory was designed to do, just like their forebearer, Marx, who called for the ruthless criticism of all that exists. They wanted to watch the world burn. That was their, their, their philosophy. That was their aims. They criticized and educated, but mostly they seduced and enticed a generation until their minds became transformed and realigned according to a new order. Few college students could name a single member of the Frankfurt School, and yet, as some of you have probably already gathered from what I've just shared, their philosophy is pervasive in education today. 
and other philosophies that were derived directly from critical theory, whose aims are exactly the same if you look them up. Uh, I think the most ghoulish, this is a hard competition, by the way. I don't, I don't say this lightly, and I'm open to others contending with me about this. But I think the most ghoulish of the members of the Frankfurt School was Herbert Marcuse. He was not only the key figure of the Frankfurt School and critical theory, but guess what he was also the key figure of? He was the intellectual architect and guru of the 1960s counterculture in this country. He was considered the, the godfather of the new left. He was worshipped by the hippies and the flower children. Where do you think they got their ideas? His books became the gospels of the 1968 generation that set about to tear down the existing order in this country. Fifty years later, you know, his, these, these, these radicals are now tenured in universities. That's actually his son carrying on his legacy in the, in the classrooms of today. He looks actually just like him. Uh, I think it's pretty safe to say that 50 years later, the long march through the institutions has been successful. America has effectively been bewitched. I want to pivot and close with a story and then a commission. And hopefully some kind of a, a light or a solution in the midst of, of this deep, dark subject. Um, I read about a story that occurred in 1960. A man and took his two children on a boat ride down the Niagara River. This is the Niagara River. And as the name suggests, it feeds into the Niagara Falls. The locals all understand that the North Grand Island Bridge, which is pictured here, is the unofficial point of no return. What that means is, even though the water looks the same on both sides, uh, it's the same depth on both sides, nothing seems to have changed on one side or the other. Once you pass under that bridge, you are going over the falls. You will not be able to gain the momentum necessary to overcome the pull of the falls. And so there are warning signs. There are all kinds of indications that do not go any further than this. Well, he, he shut off his boat for some unknown reason, and they were just floating and enjoying the, the river, and unconsciously went under the bridge. And at some point, he realized his predicament, unfortunately too late, and he cranked up the motor of the boat and turned it around. But even at full throttle, he kept continuing to go backwards. And finally, the motor burned out, and he ended up literally grabbing an oar and trying, you know, with his arms to try and you know, get this, this boat to move away from the falls, but it, it wasn't going to happen. And as he neared the falls, which, by the way, are six miles from this bridge, I mean, it, it, you can't see it coming. It's just, you know, there's, this, there's, there's, there's a warning sign, there's some indication, but you can't look and say, this, this water looks no different than this water. It's only two feet deep in certain areas. I mean, it seemed so innocuous, and yet he had reached the point of no return. And as he entered the rapids, the boat began to break apart. Um, he and his young son went over the falls. His daughter was projected in an opposite direction, near, near an island, actually, there in the middle of that river. And as she began to flail, a man saw what was going on, and wedged himself through the railing that, that, that hung over this river and hung by his feet into the water. And as she, float, as, she, as she came by in the current, which she was in no control over, as the current took her, she reached up, grabbed hold of his thumb. He grabbed her hand and he pulled her out of the water and she survived. And as I read that story, I couldn't help but think of, of Western culture in light of this, that might progress, might this, this cultural undercurrent of progress be those forces that were taking us to the North Grand Island Bridge, taking us to that point of no return. Progress was something that marked modernity, the period of modernity for those that are familiar with the transition from modernity to post-modernity. Modernity was marked by progress. Post-modernity is marked by nihilism. Might 
Culturally, we have reached that point of, of no return where the only thing left was the outworking of death in the culture. And it began to weigh heavy, heavily on me when I thought of that in light of where our culture is headed. But then I remembered that man that was hanging over the, the edge, and I thought, you know, even if we acknowledge, which, which more and more are doing every day, that the culture has reached the point of no return, might we begin looking to the shore to see if there aren't those that are standing on solid ground reaching over a hand to pull us completely out of that water that has immersed us and that is heading over the falls. And one writer said that many regard the collapse of our culture moralistically as if the tide could be turned back with a robust reassertion of Christian doctrine and ethical rigor. And I think there's something, you can see something in that that you don't know, you don't know what to do. You don't know, oh, we've just got we to bring Christianity back. And we gotta. But he says, three cheers for robust reassertions of doctrine and ethical rigor, but it's not enough. Ordinary Christians need, desperately need, a more profound and holistic grasp of the modern and postmodern condition. It is the water in which we swim and the air we breathe. It reminds me of Solzhenitsyn in 1983 when he said, today's world has reached a state, now this is today's world in 1983, has reached a state which if it had been described to preceding centuries would have called forth the cry, this is the apocalypse. If people had looked into this culture 100 years ago, they would, have, they would have been looking to the heavens. This is it. Could it get any worse than this? And yet he went on to say, sadly, yet we have grown used to this kind of world, and we even feel at home in it. And so we fail to notice the condition of the culture around us and the dire state that has become of it. But... I don't think we find ourselves in all that different a predicament than what Abraham found himself in in Ur when God called him completely out of the waters of that Babylonian culture and into a culture of life, called him on a complete exodus out of that culture and to make of him a, a new people. I don't think it's all that different than the predicament that Moses and the children of Israel found themselves in in Egypt when God called them out of that culture that was assimilating them and in to a promised land. The passage in Ezekiel I referred to earlier that speaks of the two trees in the garden likens the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to Pharaoh. It says Pharaoh is an expression of this cultural current. Remember what Pharaoh tried to do when Moses sought to come out of Egypt. He said, okay. Go ahead and go, but just leave your flocks here in Egypt. Leave your livelihood here. As long, you, you can go and, and, and live as much of your life as you want to there, but as long, as long as you depend upon this system for your sustenance. And when that wouldn't do, okay, okay, that's fine. Leave your children behind. You guys can all go, but just leave, leave your kids back here in Egypt. Well, Pharaoh knew that... He was quite content with the adults going off and letting their culture completely die along with them. As long as he had his hooks and those children, they would become assimilated and indistinguishable from Egyptians. But Moses said, not going to work. I'm not going to do that. He absolutely refused. And ultimately, they all came out of Egypt. Uh, in Revelation chapter 18... The culmination of, of Babylonian culture is described after finally having seduced and deceived all the nations of the world. After these things, John says, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And she has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk 
of the wine of the passion of her immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. Does that sound familiar? In light of what we're discussing? What was his prescription? To his people. The same as it was to to Abraham and Ur? The same as it was to Moses in Egypt? And we can say, well, that was for a certain purpose. But this is the message of God to the church in the last days. His message was the same. Come out of her, my people, that you may not participate in her sins and that you may not receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled as high as heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. But God isn't just calling us and hasn't throughout history just called his people out of a culture to languish in the wilderness. He's called them out that he would call them in to a completely different kind of culture, to an alternative culture. He said to Abraham, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. A new kingdom, a new people will come forth from this exodus. And the same thing to Moses. The original American dream was that the Puritans would come and establish a land, not where they just had religious freedom to live according to their conscience, but to advance and to build the kingdom of God, to build up the body of Christ on the earth. That's the form of, that's what the early settlers of this country were progressing toward, is the creation of a new kingdom, the creation of an alternative culture to this death-bound culture. Roger Williams was one of those early Puritans. He actually became the founder of the First Baptist Church. He's the father of the Baptist. He was convinced that while the church of his time was scattered in the wilderness, that God's patterns and power would eventually be restored completely. And that in the latter days, the glorious church would bring the godly out of the wilderness by restoring the doctrine, discipline, and spiritual authority of ancient apostolic Christianity. He proclaimed that it may please the Lord again to clothe his people with a spirit of zeal and a courage for the name of Christ and power forth those fiery streams again of tongues and prophecy in the restoration of Zion. This was the form of, this is the eternity that God has put in the hearts of men. This building of Zion and restoring of Zion, this reaching for transcendence is, is, is the desire that God has put in our hearts. And I think in large part, this is even why a lot of young people have lost interest in their parents' Christianity. The, the world and this culture offers them a sort of transcendence. It offers them to participate and give their lives to something that's moving forward, whether it's science and technology and progress and innovation and all of this. And yet they view their parents' religion as a place they go on Sunday and on Wednesday, but then live out the rest of their lives immersed in this culture. And they aren't excited by that. But I spent the first 30 years of my life embedded in this culture. I didn't even begin to seek God or ever set foot in a church until I was 30 years old. And so I speak of the unveiling of modern culture who, as someone who was embedded within its institutions for most of my life. And I remember the thing that struck me the most when I first stepped foot onto this land is that I beheld three generations a 70-year-old, a 35-year-old, a 10-year-old, all sitting together excited about the, the joint work that they were engaged in. There was something they were all a part of. They all, they all had their place and were participating in the advancing of the kingdom of God. And they related on that level. It was what bound them together. And I had never in my life seen that before. I had never seen a culture where the old had not been marginalized by the young, where the young had not been written off as foolish by the old, and there were these isolated generations, but everybody 
was coming together for a purpose. We believe in progress, but it's the kind of progress that Paul refers to when he admonishes believers to continue in the faith. The progress that Solomon alluded to when he wrote that the path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter into the full light of day. The progress that John writes about in the third chapter of Revelation, admonishing the church of Sardis, I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains, and is about to die, for I have not found your works to be complete in the sight of my God. There's more to accomplish. The progress that Nehemiah spoke of when he said, come out, come, let's build, rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. And finally, the progress that Paul spoke of in Ephesians 4, that we would progress from the unity of the spirit to the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, no longer being like children tossed to and fro and carried with every wind of doctrine, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. That is the blueprint for progress that God has put in the hearts of men and women. And I believe that it is beyond the time to devote our lives to that form of progress. And uh, what we have been attempting to do here as a community for the last 50 years, only 10 of which I've been a part, uh, is to find some way to establish a complete alternative culture, to, not just to come out of this dead and dying culture, but to create a place of refuge where those like myself that are seeking to find a way of escape from the conveyor belt of progress can find a soft landing place where they and their family can give themselves to something of enduring value in advancing the kingdom of God. And I know that we have not arrived, but that is what we have devoted our lives to nonetheless. Mm -hmm.